For the last seven sessions, we have been studying the book of Psalms, reflecting on what they teach us about wisdom and lament and praise and prayer. We've looked at patterns in the Psalms as a whole, and we've looked more closely at particular Psalms. And we've thought about the Psalms in connection to our own joys and fears, our own hopes and disappointments. But there is one question that we haven't yet addressed, at least not directly. And according to the German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is a question that we must address before we are ready to really and truly pray the Psalms. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself puts it, if we want to read and to pray the prayers of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, we must not first ask what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. So that is what we'll be doing in this session. In order to help us read and pray these Psalms, we're going to ask what they have to do with Jesus Christ. And as a result, we'll be able to understand what they have to do with us and how we can pray the Psalms, all of the Psalms, as Christians today. Now, the first thing to notice about the relationship between Jesus and the Psalms is how these, how these Psalms, these poems, these ancient Hebrew songs, how they anticipate the life and the ministry of Jesus. And this is something that Jesus himself actually called attention to. You see it when he appears to his disciples after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. And he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And Jesus isn't the only one who thinks that the Psalms were written about him, that they refer to him. The authors of the New Testament do as well. In fact, this may surprise you, but there are actually more references to the Psalms in the New Testament than to any other book of the Old Testament. And sometimes this is rather subtle, like in the Gospels, which frequently include allusions as well as quotations from the Psalms as they tell about Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. In the Gospel of Luke, for instance, when Jesus is born, the song that the angels sing contains echoes of both Psalms 29 and 148, implying that somehow through the birth of this young child that God is being enthroned as king. And then several chapters later when Jesus is baptized, a, a voice from heaven says to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As we read on, it's clear that Jesus' sonship, what that means, his unity with the Father, it's entirely unique. But early readers, early Jewish readers of Luke's gospel, they would also have recognized that this statement at Jesus' baptism, that it's an echo of the words spoken to the anointed king in Psalm 2. But it's especially in the story of Jesus' passion and his death that you find allusions to the Psalms. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, for instance, he's greeted by, crowd, by cries from the crowd, cries of Hosanna, a word that means save us. 
And then the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, the people who greeted Jesus this way, they, they weren't making these words up. They were actually quoting the words of Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, finally, at his crucifixion, once again, we find it's the words of the Psalms that are prevalent. John quotes from Psalm 69 in talking about Jesus' persecution. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' final words are from Psalm 39. And in both Matthew and Mark, the words that Jesus utters from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words of a psalm, Psalm 22. So as you can see, the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and death, they're filled with the words of the psalms. And in the rest of the New Testament, as Christians reflect on who Jesus is and what his death and resurrection meant, it's once again the psalms to which they turn for guidance. When Peter, for instance, stands up on the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel for the first time, he begins with a reference to the prophet Joel. But then, when he goes on to proclaim who Jesus is, the scriptures that he turns to are Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 22. The Apostle Paul also quotes from these same Psalms when he is preaching later on. And when the book of Hebrews, in its first chapter, talks about who Jesus is, in just the first and second chapter in addressing this issue, the book of Hebrews quotes Psalms 2, 8, 22, 45, 102, 104, and 110. And when Jesus told his disciples, you see, that the Psalms refer to him, it's clear that they took him seriously. And that as they went back and they reread the Psalter, they reread these Psalms that they knew, as they reread them, they found Jesus everywhere. And it wasn't just the writers of the New Testament either. Several centuries later, the Bishop of Alexandria, a man named Athanasius, he wrote a, a letter to a certain man, Marcellinus, instructing him on how to read and interpret the Psalms. And one of the first things that Athanasius points out to Marcellinus in this letter one of the first things he points out is about the Psalms is how much they anticipate and how much they refer to Jesus, to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Here's what Athanasius says. There are Psalms 22 and 69, which foretell about the divine cross and what great treachery Jesus submitted to on our behalf. And Psalms 2 and 109, which signal both the plotting wickedness of the Jews and the betrayal by Judas Iscariot. And the 21st, 50th, and 72nd, also making manifest his kingship, his power as judge, and again in his appearance in flesh for us. Psalm 16 demonstrates his resurrection from the dead. The 24th and 47th announce his ascent into heaven. And while reading Psalms 93, 96, 98, and 99, you should be able to contemplate the benefits won for us by the Savior through his sufferings. So there you go. The Psalms relate to Jesus because the Psalms 
are ultimately about Jesus. But the relationship between Jesus and the Psalms, it doesn't end there. No, it's, it's not just that the Psalms speak about Jesus. The real clue to understanding the Psalms is to recognize that Jesus is in fact the one speaking in the Psalms. At Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talks about this in that little book I quoted from earlier, a wonderful little book he wrote about the Psalms called The Prayer Book of the Bible. And in the third chapter of that book, which is entitled, Who Prays the Psalms? He points out that the primary, not the exclusive, but the primary author of the Psalms is King David. Traditionally, the Psalms are associated with the voice of David, God's anointed king. But David, Bonhoeffer says, and the others who wrote the Psalms, they didn't write them alone. The New Testament says that the Psalms, just like all the rest of the scriptures, that they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the final answer to the question that Bonhoeffer poses, who prays the Psalms, isn't just David or Asaph or Solomon. It is the one whom David bears witness to in his own life. The one in and by whose spirit he prays. The one that the hymn refers to as great David's greater son. As Bonhoeffer puts it, these same words which David spoke, therefore, the future Messiah spoke through him. The prayers of David were prayed also by Christ, or better, Christ himself prayed them through his forerunner David. Now, Bonhoeffer's not saying anything new here. 1,500 years before he wrote his little book on the Psalms, there was another theologian, very well known, St. Augustine. And Augustine likewise argued that the primary voice of the Psalter that we encounter, the one speaking the words, is none other than the voice of Christ himself. In a sermon that Augustine preached on Psalm 31, this is what he says, Christ is speaking here in the prophet. No, I would dare to go further and say simply, Christ is speaking. Uh, this, for Augustine, as well as for Bonhoeffer, this is the real key to the Psalms. If we want to read these prayers rightly, then we need to recognize who is praying them. And the final answer to that question what is the voice we encounter? Who is praying these prayers? The final answer is Jesus Christ. So when we read and pray wisdom psalms, like Psalm 1, Psalm 37, we should recognize that the voice that we are hearing is none other than Christ, who is the wisdom of God. And when we come across psalms of lament, like Psalm 6 that we looked at earlier in this study, or Psalm 22, the words that we're hearing are the words of the grief and sorrow of Jesus, the suffering servant. And even the Psalms of praise, like Psalm, the Psalm we studied last session, Psalm 96, even there we're encountering Christ. For it was Jesus Christ, after all, in his humanity, who offered the perfect sacrifice of praise to the Father on our behalf. Everywhere we turn in the Psalter, we find Jesus Christ. He is the one being spoken of, and he is the one speaking. Now, this may sound 
strange to you? After all, how could Jesus be the one praying in some of these Psalms? Psalms like Psalm 51 or Psalm 38. These Psalms that are confessions of sin and statements of contrition and sorrow over sin. Wasn't Jesus sinless? How could he pray Psalms like these? Well, on the face of it, I have to say that that does seem like a good reason to think that maybe some of these Psalms are not prayed by Jesus. But actually, even these Psalms, even these Psalms of confession, find their most perfect expression when they proceed from the mouth of Christ. Because even though Jesus himself was sinless and had no reason to be contrite over his own sin, it's also true that Jesus took upon himself the weight of our sin, and he offered confession and contrition on our behalf. Jesus never experienced grief over his own sin, but he did experience it over ours. So even in Psalms like that, the most unlikely of places, even there we still find Jesus' voice. Now, at this point, you may be convinced, okay, Jesus is indeed the key to the Psalms. But you might also be left with a question. What does this have to do with me? How does Jesus' prayer of the Psalms change the way that I pray them? And this is a really important question because to ask this question is to get at the heart of what it means really to pray as a Christian. Because as as the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams says, for the Christian to pray above all else is to let Jesus's prayer happen in you. We begin prayer by expressing the confidence that we stand where Jesus stands and can say what Jesus says. Now this, this is absolutely central to what the New Testament teaches us about prayer. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, when he taught them to pray using the words, our Father, he was inviting them to join into his own relationship with the Father. And when the Apostle Paul talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit in places like Romans and Galatians, he focuses on how that affects our experience as Christians, how it affects our experience of prayer. As he puts it in Galatians chapter 4, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So when Christians pray the Psalms, we are praying them as those who have been given the spirit of the son, as Paul says. Those who stand where Jesus stands and can say what Jesus says. When we pray the Psalms, we are praying in and we're praying with Jesus himself. And not just in and with Jesus, but in and with his body, the church. And if you approach the Psalms that way, it really does make a big difference how you pray them. And when you come to Psalms like Psalm 26, for instance, and you read where it says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now, maybe you hesitate to pray those words because... You don't think that you can adopt the posture of someone who has walked with full integrity. 
But if you come to that psalm, remembering that you stand where Jesus stands, then you can indeed pray those words because he did walk with full integrity and you are united with him. That is, that's the posture from which you pray. Or when you come to some of those psalms that call down judgment on the wicked, what are called the imprecatory psalms, and you, you hesitate to pray their harsh words, if you remember that the words you are praying are the prayers of Jesus, then you'll also remember that those prayers were indeed answered, that God did rise up and judge the wicked, and that Jesus, the one who prayed those words, that he himself was the one who actually bore that judgment. Or maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the lament psalms that you struggle with. You know, all those psalms that come from a place of suffering and pain. And maybe you don't like to pray them because you don't feel like they represent the condition of your own life. But remember, as a Christian, you aren't just praying the psalms with Jesus. You're also praying them with his body, the church. And even if you aren't experiencing at present a time of grief or suffering or loneliness or doubt, there are others in the church who are. So don't skip that psalm. Pray its words. Pray them in and with the Christ who suffered and pray them with his suffering church. Now, the Anglican tradition of prayer invites all Christians to to pray through the entire Psalter on a regular basis, not skipping and choosing, not picking certain ones out, praying them all. And I hope that this study has given you tools to do that with more understanding and more confidence. But of course, study is no replacement for practice. So let's not just study the Psalms. Let's make a practice of praying them as well, a practice of letting these prayers of Jesus be in our hearts and on our lips. Amen. Let us pray.